Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. Today's interview is with my friend Matt Poulsen. Matt is the CEO and co-founder of a really cool company called Omaze. They auction off once-in-a-lifetime experiences to raise money for charities. Matt and his team have somehow convinced people like George Clooney to auction off the chance to be his date on the red carpet. While they were at it, they chatted with the cast of Breaking Bad and said, why don't you invite a fan to hang out in your super iconic RV while you make them a homemade meal? With their crazy passion, creative ideas, and big thinking, they have raised over $130 million for charities around the world. So it's clear I'm obsessed with Omaze, but today we're not here to talk about Matt's business. We're here to talk about Matt's life. This Father's Day, Matt woke up happy, healthy, and strong 40-year-old man. By the end of the day, he had flatlined for close to five minutes and would spend the following days in a coma. Matt speaks openly about why he thinks his mom saved his life, his experience and crossing over to the other side, and how everything that happened in the days that followed would change his life for the better. Here's today's interview with Matt Paulson. All right. All right. Matt Paulson. Kimmy Cope. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So first I thought I would set the stage and how I met you. Okay. We just talked about it. I just had a baby. So it was six years ago at a fireside chat um, as you were about to launch your empire. <laughs> and I uh, worked with you for a hot minute at the very beginning of Omaze. And I should say, we had a follow-up meeting. And I think that you had two people in the office. And I walked in here today and there's 100 employees. <laughs> it is true. So... Um, Time uh, and and uh, has served you well with Omaze. <laughs> um, so here we are on a Friday night in LA in your hipster offices, and we're going to dig into something that's incredibly raw and personal journey that you've just been through. But I did want to start with Omaze, and if you can share with me why you started and built the company. I know it's a huge part of your life, so I do want to sort of tee up um, where you were in your life and um, the story of Omaze. Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. I'm very excited. I'm a very big Kimmy Culp fan for people listening, and you should be too. Um, Yeah, so Omaze was started by me and Ryan Cummins. We were um, best friends, undergrad at Stanford, and then we came down to L.A. to get into entertainment, specifically focused on cause content, 
we had a real passion for using storytelling to inspire action, you know, because the beauty of a story in its essence is that it enables you to connect with someone whose experiences are different than your own. And when you do that, you want to help that person. And when you do that, you feel more connected. So it's a virtuous cycle. And so we did a bunch of different projects along those lines. We were the um, first directors on Live Earth, which was the biggest concert ever thrown to raise awareness for climate change. Um, seven continents in one night and had everyone from – you know, Kanye to uh, the Rolling Stones. We did a um, the Clinton Foundation's Decade of Difference um, global television concert event. When, and that had everybody from Jay-Z and Bono to Bill Gates and Tony Blair. And so what we realized from working with these really influential people who authentically wanted to do good in the world, and I know you know this world incredibly well, is that we were creating a lot of awareness around this work, but not necessarily a lot of impact. And that was kind of endemic to the cause content space as a whole. And so we needed a better model to do what we were passionate about. And so um, we decided to go to business school and surround ourselves with people smarter than us and learn new ways of thinking. And I went to Wharton and I, I got there and I never opened Excel before <laughs> I got to Wharton. That's um, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and so then when we were in school – went to this event that Magic Johnson was hosting for the Boys and Girls Club where he was auctioning off the chance to play basketball with him and go to a Lakers game. But it was one of those things that was only available to the high net worth individuals sitting in the room. And we were in the room but not high net worth individuals. We were like the guys who get invited last minute to fill the table at the Beverly Hilton. you know. And so we sat and we watched as the auction went up to – $15,000 and we couldn't afford to participate. But Magic is our childhood hero. Like there's nothing to this day that we'd rather do than play basketball with Magic Johnson. And so when we were driving home that night, we said if they made that available to everybody online for the chance to win, you could raise so much more money, so much more awareness and open up a whole new donor base. And you can't brag about yourself or you can, <laughs> but you're a good guy, so you don't. But to date, you guys have donated or raised $130 million for charity. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty remarkable journey. It is It is crazy to think about that. Yeah. yeah. So congrats, my friend. Thank you. So the journey that we're here to talk about today is um, something that happened to you over this past summer. All right. So I'm going to set it up. Okay. It's Father's Day of this year. You're 40 years old. You're in great shape, happy, healthy, very successful tech entrepreneur in L.A. And by the end of that day, you had flatlined and are within inches of your life. So walk me through that day. Sure. Yeah, so it started with um, when I was born, my stomach was twisted in a knot. So they, had to re they thought I was going to die when I was born, and they had to remove two-thirds of my small intestine. And the scar tissue from that surgery broke off 40 years later, just like randomly. And so my stomach was really hurting. And I called my buddy, who's a doctor, and said, you know, my stomach always hurts, but it's really hurting right now. But the thing is, I'm supposed to go out on a date with this girl that I really like, and it's our second date, and I think this could be something. Um, and I really want to go on this date. So you know, do I need to go to the hospital? And he said, I think you should go in. Your appendix might be bursting. So I go to the hospital. I get there, and it's getting worse as I get there. And 
my parents come. I was supposed to meet our COO, Helen, at the time. And so she came to be there. So I wasn't by myself at the beginning. And then Anna, my now girlfriend, all came to the hospital. They told them, we're not sure what's going on. We're going to monitor overnight. If this doesn't kind of unwind itself, then we'll do surgery in the morning. So everyone leaves. And Helen, the COO, pulls into her driveway. It's like midnight. And she gets home. And she literally, like, cannot get out of the car. Something is telling her, like, I, I have to go back. And she's not one to follow that kind of you yeah. know, crazy Venice she, intuition. She's, she's not. From, <laughs> no, she's from, you know, she's from the UK. So, but she goes, she decides to go back. And part of it was the nurses had been not great and they'd messed up on some stuff and she didn't feel a lot of confidence. But if she doesn't come back, um, I die, like, an hour later. Wow. Um, so she's, because she's the one who noticed my blood pressure was continuing to plummet. The alarms hadn't triggered it in the way that they should have. She went and got the nurse and said, like, this is really bad. She was the one who actually got the doctor, and the doctors came in the room, and the, all of a they saw it, and they took one look, and there was a SWAT team in my room. They rushed me down into surgery. The, I come out of surgery, and they say to my mom, the good news is we figured out what it is. It's a bowel obstruction. The bad news is that his heart rate is continuing to plummet. We don't know why, and he's in critical condition. Wow. Yeah. So then a couple hours pass. My mom goes downstairs to get my dad and my brother, and she comes back up on the elevator, and she hears over the loudspeaker, code blue, in room 437. And my mom works in a hospital, so she knows that means flatline, and she knows that's my room. Wow. Yeah. So then she rushes upstairs, rushes up the elevator, gets to the door, and the nurse says, I'm sorry. You can't come in here. This is really bad. She said, look, I was there when he came in this world. If he's leaving this world right now, I'm going to be in that room. So the nurse let her in, and she goes into the room, and they're doing the compressions, and they're doing the electric shot, the defibrillator, and my body's bouncing up and down, but I'm not responding. And my mom, as she would explain it, starts to crumble a little bit. You know, it's one thing to lose a child. It's another thing to be in the room when it's happening. Yeah, watching it happen and unfold. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're a mother. You, I'm sure you can go to that space. And, and at the same time, my dad was outside with my brother, and a doctor came outside and said to another doctor in front of my brother, not knowing it was my brother, like, hey, we lost this kid. He's gone. And so my brother pushed my dad into the room saying, you should be there with mom and when he came in the room, he was bawling and like making a lot of noise. And so my mom kind of turned to him to say, like, Gary, you got to be quiet or they're going to kick us out of this room. And my dad's reaction was like, if I cannot cry in this moment, like when on earth can I cry? Um, but when she did that, she turned and she said she saw something she'd never seen before in a hospital. Every like nurse, every doctor, every staff member in the ICU had just somehow gravitated towards this room. And there was like 40 of them just standing out looking in through this window. And she said they looked like they were a church choir, but they were silent and they were just kind of leaned forward and they were sending in this positive energy. And she was so moved by these people that, you know, just clearly like had love for her son that didn't know her son. It was this very spiritual experience for her. She said it was like, and it just gave her this strength. And so she gathered herself and she turned back to the table and she started coaching me, you know, coaching me back. She said, Matthew David Polson, these people are fighting 
to save your life. They are fighting so hard to save your life, but you're not fighting hard enough. You got to fight Matthew David Polson. You got to show them that you're a fighter. You got to fight to come back. These people are fighting to save your life. But yeah, so she kept saying that. And the flat line went on for four and a half minutes, wow. which is an eternity in that room, but also just, you know, medically, you usually don't come back from that. And so, you know, my mom, as she's saying all that, she just kept thinking, she kept thinking, like, please don't call it. Like, don't, you know, she works in a hospital. She hears flatline and then she hears people saying the patient has passed every single day. And so she was just in her head, don't call it. And just as she thought the doctor was going to call it, he kind of turned away and like shook his head. She, he, he stopped her a second and said, wait a second. And he kind of turned back and he goes, I think we have a pulse. And all of a sudden my eyes opened up and I looked up at my mom and I looked up at my dad and I kind of slowly raised my right arm and gave a thumbs up. Wow. And then I slowly raised my left arm and gave a thumbs up. And then I went out again for like 48 more hours into a coma. <laughs> so you've talked about the experience that four and a half minutes when you were essentially gone. What do you remember and what happened during during that time? So my memory of that is... It's not what you typically hear, at least I've typically heard on TV, where you hear the story of someone walking down a tunnel slowly towards this bright light. That was not it for me. Um, my experience was almost, you know, these things are ineffable. You can't really explain them. But my best version I can say is it was it was almost, if you've ever been scuba diving or snorkeling or watched a you know an underwater movie and, and you're deep underwater and you're looking up at the surface of the ocean, and you can see just a little bit of light coming through. It was like that, but the light felt like just impossibly far away, like a universe of time away. And the water was this like cosmic energy water where like they talk about in Buddhism where you, you know, you, you're both a drop in the ocean and the entire ocean, or when you become nothing, you become everything. It was like that. I was myself, like not in my body, but I was myself, but I also felt connected to everything else. And I could hear my mom saying, Matthew David Polson, you got to fight. You got to fight. These people are fighting to save your life. And I could hear that. And I remember thinking like, wow, I've got a long way to go, you know, but I just, I just remember fighting with my spirit and, and also feeling that the energy around me was collaborating with me, that the people that were right outside the room sending in the energy, my friends knew about what was going on. So they were holding prayer circles. My girlfriend, Anna's family had prayer circles going in Argentina. And I just believe the collection of those intentions, like some, like I could, I could feel it. And I remember just fighting and fighting and fighting and just like, it felt like an infinitely long journey. And then I remember the moment of just like bursting back into the world and feeling that feeling of like, oh my gosh, the journey, I'm here, I'm back. And looking at my mom and looking at my dad. And then there's just like this moment of pure joy where I felt connected to everything in the world all at once. That's amazing. Did you have any notions or thoughts before this about the afterlife or what happens to people or what would happen to you when you died? I mean, I grew up Catholic, but I have left the church and I've left it a, a 
you know, a long time ago. Um, and so whenever I would hear people talk about like past lives or like time loafs or these different connections, I was like never, I could never get my head around that. It just never resonated for me. But now I see that differently. And I'm, I mean, I was gone. Like I was, you know, all the doctors were saying like I was gone, like that I was out of that body. And then because they said it's very uncommon or not very uncommon, they've never seen someone flatline and then open up their eyes and like lift their hand and give a thumbs up. Which is the visual of you opening your eyes and lifting both hands and thumbs up from being dead to, I mean. They said they've never seen it before. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. Yeah. And I think I was, I really think I was like in another place. Um, So like I've always had a sense of that we're all intimately connected and intuition sometimes on there's more going on than I can see. Um, and in a weird way, I, I always had a f- sense like something like this would happen in my life in a weird way. Like I talked to my therapist about it before, like not long before saying I thought there was going to be something that happened in my life that um, would change everything. Did um, you envision something specific? No, I didn't envision this. I just – you know, I don't, I don't know. I felt like I had been there before too when I was in that place, but I guess, you know, I was, I almost died when I was born. So yeah, there's that. That's um, interesting. But I'm still sort of, I don't have like a cohesive, there's not like I could, that I could come up with a cohesive explanation, but that it just almost feels like I was looking at a, like a little painting on the wall thinking that was the whole world. And all of a sudden, like you step back and you realize, oh my God, there's a whole other world behind that painting. <laughs> you know, it's like that's what it feels like, and that, and that there's there's forces that are so much greater than what I've ever was even able to c- contemplate. So you shared with me when we talked earlier that you feel like your mom saved you, in a sense, and that she had really prepared her whole life for that moment. And you mentioned her working in a hospital and sort of past struggles that she had fought through and persevered. So talk to me about your mom and and um, your, your thoughts on the role she played that day with you. Yeah, my mom is, you know, an incredible woman. Um, she's hilarious. She called me the other day and I picked up the phone and I said, Hey, Mom, can I call you back? I'm in a meeting. She goes, well, fuck you then, Matt. <laughs> like, I like uh, her. Yeah. Um, can I cuss in this Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Explicit. Okay. But so she's always been like this amazing, funny woman. And a lot of my friends, after they've heard this story, they've said, wow, I just hope like one day what like I can be the mother your mother is or the strength, have the strength your mom has. But she didn't always have that. I mean, it was always inside her, but it's not how she was. You know, she struggled – with with postpartum, she struggled when she went through menopause, like violently. Like, um, she, you know, my both my brother and sister had psychotic breaks after my sisters. You know, my mom was so distraught that she literally, like, I came home and found her, and she was crying so hard on the couch. I literally thought I thought the crying was going to kill her. Like her body, just the way it was reacting. I remember when I was in high school. There was a kid in my high school who one day he just didn't wake up. And we had a funeral at the school and they, the mom was only about 45 years old and they had to wheel her in and her body was like crumpled over in a ball almost. And I remember looking at her 
and realizing for the first time, like nothing has touched her, but the the mental anguish is like, I mean, she can't walk. And that's what my mom looked like. And so, you know, and she made a choice to overcome that. She made a choice to change her relationship with her children. She made a choice to love more and care less. And if she hadn't evolved out of that, through that adversity, she would not have been the person ready to step up in that moment. And the strength. Yeah, she would not have had that strength. So you shared earlier, you come back to life, and then you go into a coma for 48 hours. Walk me through that 48 hours, Matt. After the the resuscitation, the guy, Dr. Ye, who is the one who had done the initial surgery, he's an amazing guy, um, comes down and he he's like, what's going on? He runs, they run the probability of survival and it's a 0% chance of survival. And so... This is while you're in the coma. This is right after, no, I'm not even in it yet. I've just, they've just resuscitated me. Mm-hmm. My heart is, excuse me, is barely working and they don't think I'm going to last much longer, you know, so like I'm still sedated from like, I'm really just kind of um, sedated from the surgery. And so he turns to my mom and says, you know, you have to understand like this is not going to end well. And she says, I understand. He says, no, you don't understand. Like his organs are shutting down. She said, I understand. But five minutes ago, we didn't have a pulse. Now we have a pulse. So what are we going to do about that? And he said, there's this thing called the ECMO machine. It's not a great option. Only about five out of ten people who touch this machine die, you, you know. And we, it, it takes over your entire heart function, even more intense than when you do a bypass. Um, and, but the, the other problem is, is we only have one of these machines, and it's at Westwood, and we've never taken it off campus in the history of the hospital. We were at UCLA Santa Monica. This was at UCLA Westwood, and and he's not gonna, Matt's not gonna survive the ride over there. The other problem is there's only two doctors that do this surgery. It's Father's Day. Neither of them are on call. And we don't even know if we can like get this over here. So at the same time, my buddy that I had called initially the doctor um, happened to be at a bachelor party in Vegas. And he was sitting next to the head of surgery at UCLA. And he said to him, hey, I sent my friend yesterday with the stomach situation. Can you check and see how he's doing? Because they can pull the records up real time. And the had a surgery, pulls up the records, and he turns and says, your friend's going to die any minute. So if they sprung into action, this guy called this doctor named Dr. Benarash, who was an amazing guy also. He left his Father's Day, assembled this A-team. They brought the ECMO machine over. They did this crazy surgery that they'd never done before in this, like, side room. They put, they put hooked me up to the ECMO, transported me over to UCLA Westwood. They got there. My buddy flew down from Vegas. They tested my heart, and it was the faintest flicker. And so they they did their full core press, as he explained it, of like to stimulate my heart. They did adrenaline. They did steroids. They did all the pressers. They put a breathing machine in there in addition. And then, you know, again, like like they turn down the machine and they're hoping for like bump 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 bump. That's like a normal heart, and mine like wasn't even. It wasn't even making noise. It was barely flickering. And so like, this isn't good. <laughs> and then my sister flew down from Portland, and she and I were, are really close. 
and we, you know, my sister's gone through some stuff in her life and we have this playlist that we share called our inspiration playlist. And it has like the cheesiest songs you can imagine on it, like Miley Cyrus, The Climb and like shit like that. And my sister has a beautiful voice and she starts playing the playlist and singing the songs to me. And then the nurse, Ashley, who looked like she was a Disney princess, like a character out of Frozen or something, she's singing too. And Ashley told me the story the next day that they were singing and they were singing and the guy, Kevin, whose job it was to monitor the ECMO, they have someone 24-7 on the ECMO, he, uh, he, he said, you guys, his heart is starting to respond. Like none of the drugs, none of the pressers, none of that had worked, but like somehow I could hear the singing and that was starting to kickstart my heart and it just kind of steadily improved to the point where they said, okay, let's take him out of the coma, take him out of the sedatives and see how his brain is doing you know, see how much damage he has. And I woke up and my heart had just like, my whole body had just rebooted. I was just the happiest person in the world. My buddy told me the first thing that I wrote. So I this was know. obviously after all the tubes have been removed, you're, you know, communicating. But even when the tubes were, no, I've still got all tubes all up, a hundred tubes in me. I just don't have a, in, I'm just not intubated. So I have a tube talk. in my neck. I have a tube in my arms. Got I have a tube in my chest. I have tubes in my legs. Like I'm still, I'm still connected to a machine that is, that is, um, that is literally powering my heart. Um, they've got this great footage over there where they told me to send a video to people where I'm like trying to take this in and it's like, it's crazy, you know? But, um, but yeah, my buddy, the, the doctor, my buddy, the doctor told me, he's like, do you remember the first thing that you wrote when you came to, like, you know, we had given you no context. All, like all you know you, is you had gone into surgery two days earlier and for your stomach and that's all you knew. And, He's like, but do you remember what you wrote? And I said, no. He said, you wrote, the first thing you wrote was tell my mom that I fought so hard. Wow. And he said, and the second thing you wrote, and you didn't know that our friends knew this, you wrote, tell all of our friends who thought of me, I love them and thank you. That's so profound. (laughs) That's pretty incredible. And that's? Yeah. So how long um, you come out of the coma how much longer are you in the hospital? And talk to me about the recovery process. So I was in the hospital for nine more days. Um, I was in ICU four more days. And then I was home. You know, I lost 40 pounds. I'm only 165 pounds. And so I lost 40 pounds. Like, it just, like, continued to shed off my body over the next eight days. I'm like, we don't know what's going on. This is crazy. In 10 days? Yeah. 40 pounds? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it was nuts. And then I went home and I was, you know, just like I had to, I mean, I had this crazy, you know, scars in my, you know, they opened me up like I looked like I was in a knife fight in my stomach and in my legs where they'd ACMO. And so, you know, my mom and my sister moved in with me and I was wearing robes and had a beard. It was the World Cup. So I watched a lot of soccer, watched a lot of music documentaries, you know, and then just try to start to process it. So you go home. To obviously heal your body, I imagine it's also an incredible time of reflection for you. You know, I think for the first couple weeks, I wasn't even – like the doctors told me not to even try to reflect, like just being around people that you love. And so it was really just about that. Like people were constantly coming over and it was magical. You know, I mean, to set the context, like – you know, when Dr. Ye, the the guy that I just mentioned, like when he when he was um when I was like towards the end of leaving the hospital, he um 
he sat me down on the edge of my bed and he's like, look, before you leave, I want you to understand something. When I finish my career 30 years from now and I'm talking about the most extraordinary case I've ever seen, this is going to be it. Like we had you at 0% chance of survival for two days and now we have you going home with your full faculties. We have no medical explanation for that. And I said, well, what is your explanation? And he said, well, your mom was really inspiring. When, when we did the second surgery, that crazy surgery with the ECMO, she was grabbing people by the cheek and saying, look, this is my son, but today this is your son and this is your brother. And his company is trying to do good in the world and you need to help them. He said, so we were very motivated by that. But outside of that, there were much larger forces at play. That was just us. And I said, well, as a man of science, how do you define those larger forces? And he said, it was love and it was optimism that brought you back. You know, and so those days following, it was just about my mom was unwinding. There was a lot of, there was a lot of like me waking up and just her or my sister like standing over and looking at my face. You know, like, well, uh, imagine there's PTSD. I yeah, mean, they watched them. you I mean, die. For me, it was easy. For them, it was, you know, it was. Um, well, they witnessed. Yeah, yeah, they had, no, it was way harder. There was, you know. It took me, like, I didn't get water for eight days when I was in the hospital. So a lot of people were visiting the hospital. That was a magical time. Like, there was a lot of people, after I had my first food, I uh, I pooped myself in front of, like, ten people. Um, so that was pretty funny. Lovely. Yeah. But it was just so, like, there's so many things in our life that, that pull us apart or that we spend time worrying about or all that. And, like, all that was just, like, gone. You know, all that mattered was the people in that room. I had nowhere else to be. I had no phone to look at. I had no nothing. Like it was just there to enjoy the people that I love. And I got to see all of them. And literally their love is why I am still on this planet. And so that was a pretty magical thing to soak in. How did it change your personal relationships? I'm just more, I mean, I'm more grateful for my personal relationships than I ever was before. I try to love more and care less. You know, I would used to take it really hard with if anybody at the company I felt like wasn't growing or didn't like the way I was managing things or felt like I'd been too hard on them or, you know, and I would take all that so personally because I cared so much about like I view this company as my family, like I love the people who work here. But then it just, I'm just going to love more and, and care less about the things I can't control. I think it was also a recognition like, we all, we all think we have much more impact over the well-beings of others than we really do. And so part of this journey for me is like was a big like freedom of my ego and which was more profound than I realized. And, and so as a result, like I think it, I hope it enriched my relationships. I'm more present than I was, more loving, but again, less attached. You said something really poetic on the phone when we talked before the interview that you stare less at your phone and more at the stars. Yeah. Which I thought was was beautifully put. But I think so many of us, and you and I both are really ambitious people, can identify ourselves by our, our career and our success in the world. How do you think it has changed your relationship with work? And um, yeah, how do you think you've changed professionally? I think a lot of people... People kind of expect you come out of something like this and work takes a back seat as a result. But, you know, I, I read um, Khalil Gibran, the guy who wrote The Prophet, 
he said, work is love made visible. And I really believe that. I, I would say I'm both more grateful for what I have accomplished in work, but less tolerant for what I haven't. And also I view my work as an expression of just like, I'm only here because of love and optimism. And I want to put as much of that back in the world through Omaze, through hopefully telling this story with my mom, you know, and, but it's none of that's about me anymore. It, it used to be like you start a company and you want to, obviously like I was dedicated to doing good in the world, but there was also like a lot more ego than I would have admitted or even maybe realized a lot more of like self-actualization using your own gifts for good. And I just don't think that way anymore. I still want all the impact and economic success and all those things because, but that's, but it's for a different reason. It's for like then to be able to put more love and optimism out versus I think before it was, I like had wrapped my identity into it in an unhealthy way. Why do you think this happened to you? I have no idea. <laughs> you know, a lot of people will say, to me, well, you had work left to do or you were meant to do something greater or, you know, that kind of thing. I don't really believe that. Like, I don't think there's some higher power that's like, Matt's got to go do this, you know. All I know is that this thing did happen and adversity is a beautiful thing, right? Like you either, you're not the same after an adversity like this. You either have post-traumatic stress disorder or you have post-traumatic growth. And I think this, you know, was a gift that triggered that for me. But I don't have an explanation. I don't think I'm some like destined for greatness type of thing or anything like that. I think I just was given a gift and I get to use it. So I can't end the interview without asking what happened on the second date. <laughs> um, and where was it? Well, the second day it ended up being in the hospital, <laughs> you know, she was on, her name is Anna. She's my girlfriend now. I love this. Yeah. She, you know, the funny part of this story is that, you know, I had FaceTimed her. We were supposed to go on the second date that night and I had FaceTimed her to say, you know, we, like, I'm going to be in the hospital. I don't know if I can do that. And she said, I'll come pick you up. And I said, sure. Cause I had no idea it was going to go too bad. And so then, then everything kind of got worse and I was getting CT scans and all this stuff. So I wasn't able to respond to my phone. So she showed up to the hospital. She had no idea my parents were there. She had no idea our Helen was there. And she had come from a pool party. And so she literally drove straight from the pool party to grab me. And she, honest from Argentina, and, you know, their bathing suit styles down there are not what they are here. So she was wearing a thong. And then she had a cover-up, but it was not opaque. <laughs> <laughs> so she comes into the this ICU is... and my and walks in wearing that. And your parents have and never met her. And my parents are in the room. <laughs> <laughs> and so and she handled it amazingly well. And then she was holding the bag while I was, you know, vomiting. And you know, she stayed there. She she when when everyone else went home, she stayed and like was next to me. Um, it's part of the reason that I think they thought I was okay and like that they could wait till the morning because like, you know, here's, here's Anna, you know, there's a girl with a thong lying next to me in this little bed. Um, so they're like, you look like he's doing okay. But, uh, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to end with a little rapid fire. Cause why not? Yeah. If you could impart one piece of wisdom that you gained from this experience, what would it be? I would say everything you want is on the other side of fear. 
we like create these fears so often for ourselves that get in the way of so much that we want to do or people we want to love or know that. And when you overcome that fear, just like know that the love that you put out can change people's lives in ways that you'll, you may never be able to see, but it, but it matters. Name something you're really good at. I am good at loving other people. I care a lot about other people. Name something you're terrible at. Singing. Me too. Capitalism or socialism? Capitalism, but it needs to be a mixture. A blend. Favorite cereal? Lucky Charms. Favorite curse word? Motherfucker. Thank you, Matt Paulson. <laughs> I adored you from the moment I met you, but um, even a bigger fan now. So tell people, where can we find you on social media and where can we check out all things Omazed? Yeah, I'm at Matt Paulson on Twitter and Instagram. That's Matt, P-O-H-L-S-O-N. And then omaze.com. Um, we've got all the action is there. All right. Thank you, Matt. Have an awesome Friday night. Thank you, Kimmy. All right. You're the best. Today's interview with Matt supports Folds of Honor. Folds of Honor provides educational scholarships to spouses and children of America's fallen and disabled service members. I think their motto says it best. Honor their sacrifice, educate their legacy. To learn more, you can find them at foldsofhonor.org. And after you're done checking out all the cool things they're doing in the world, come on over and join us at www.allthewiserpodcast.com and subscribe for our monthly newsletter. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.